0: If you're a guest here with us today, a special welcome uh, to you. We've been in a series for a number, about a month and a half or so, and the title of it is Relationships That Matter. But we come to one today that really is quite complex. I, I think we tend to think it's easy, and you'll notice there in the sermon outline, if you're following along in the bulletin there, this is about our relationship with the world now, what do I mean by that word world? And it's a very biblical term. Notice that, and I don't know if you realize this, but it's the Greek word cosmos, the, the The idea there that, um, it's Even the, the realms, it, it's, it actually literally means ordered, the, the ordered the cosmos, but it re- occurs 185 times in the New Testament, and John alone uses it 105 times. Uh, some of you, um, cosmetics comes from that term. Uh, when Steve put on his mascara this morning, you recognize he ordered the mascara. No, he, he didn't actually do that, but um, but that's where it's this idea of creating order to something. But as John uses it, recognize that he uses it. In the sense where it's the organized system that Satan uses in this world and with the people that are working within that system. So that's what we mean this morning when we talk about the world in that sense. But let me just put a couple of verses on the screen to give you an idea of of how often it's stated. 1 John 5.19 For we know that we are of God and that the whole world, there's that word again, lies in the power of the evil one. Romans 12.2, maybe many of you learned this when you were growing up, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 2 Timothy 4.10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, uh, Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. So there's, he's fallen in love with this present world. Now, most of the time it's not used, sometimes it's a neutral sense, but most of the time it's a negative sense, and even when I was growing up, we were warned about the world and all its dangers, and I assume that for many of you it was the same, that same category. But what is our relationship to the world supposed to look like? What do the scriptures call us to when we we say relate to the world? Now, I realize something that, depending on the church, there are different views as to how we should relate to the world. And maybe you grew up in a church a little bit like mine. The the church defined even discipleship, that word discipleship, they viewed it more like this. We need to be holy, and we need to be staying away from the world. Don't let them and the temptations of the world creep in on your life. So even sanctification, for some, to some degree, was really about learning to stay away from the temptations of the world. Now, the goal, I, I think at times, looking back, it was a little bit to circle the wagons as a church and create our own culture apart from the world and, and realize that that has been the pattern for many people as they approach their relationship with the world. The Amish community. Again, you you pull away, you create your own subculture, but even the whole issue of monasteries and and pulling away from the world and staying by yourself, that was a part of the system. Matter of fact, in reading this week, I was reminded of a guy by the name of Simon the Stylite, about 400 AD, and what he did is is he built this platform on top of a 60-foot pillar, and he lived on that platform for 36 years 36 years, and people would flock to him, and they would see this unworldly type man who was avoiding the world, and he would preach to them. Now, I'm not so sure that that's what the authors had in mind as the warning about the world in that sense, but having grown up in a funda- more of a fundamentalist circle, understand you had Lists. Remember the lists of what kind of behavior was acceptable and and what was not acceptable. Uh, My world, we had the filthy five. Drinking, smoking, attending movies, playing cards, and dancing. You got it. And and realize many Christian colleges, maybe you attended a Christian college, my son did, and and they were required to sign pledges that you're not going to participate in some things in the world, I remember Andy going, we could dance at a wedding, but we couldn't dance any other time. And that was part of the, the, in the written rules to where he went. But the dilemma is that at times, I think, when we come to our relationship with the world, we tend to want to write rules in place that will keep us and even our children from the world. And I remind people of this. Um, Adam and Eve fell without even a world that had started. They created the worldly system, if you want to put it in those terms. But they fell into sin without even a sin nature. But let me show you how we get into trouble if if we think that we can just create rules in our relationship with the world. Look at Colossians 2.20, what Paul writes. If with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why is it you were still alive in the world? Do not submit to its regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and the teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but there are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, Parents, if you have kids at home, to instill in our children a faith. If the primary purpose of parenting is to create a system of rules about behavior, I'm going to tell you this, it's not going to guarantee a whole lot. See, the issue really isn't trying to create rules to divide us from a group of people. The issue always comes back to the heart. It's about the affections of our heart that move away from Christ. See, worldliness, when you talk about that term worldliness, at the core, it's a matter of the heart. And it's the issue of this word affections. What we desire from the heart. I want to put up a couple statements on the screen just to reiterate them. If your heart or one's affections are captured or enticed by the world, one will love the things of the world. If your heart is captured by the love of God, you're going to be drawn toward Him and the things of God. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had the tragic death of some students in the schools. You know, and I'll tell you what, It's wanting to make me scream as a pastor here a little bit because we talk about gun control and you talk about mental illness and I go, would somebody invite the religious world into the conversation and really speak to the issues of the heart? You know, Jeremiah wrote this, the heart is desperately wicked, who can understand it? No one really wants to deal with the issues within the sinfulness of man and how that contributes to, the, to what's going on in our world. But let me just walk through some principles today that really relate how we are to, in one sense, connect with this world out there and recognize, again, that there are nuances to it. But we're going to spend just a couple minutes here in 1 John 2. But in 1 John 2, there's some... Uh, He's really given us some ideas of really what it means to walk by authentic faith and growing up. And one of them is we're obeying God and the rules of God. One of them is that we have a love for God's people. But then we come to another one here. And I want to give you the principle first, then we'll look at the passage here. Number one, if you follow along in the outline, the principles surrounding a relationship. One, we all choose a direction as to where we give our love. Now, let me explain again. Everyone loves. Everyone loves. The issue is, where are we giving our love to? What are we giving our love to? So parents, your children need to understand this distinction. And even to know this kind of language. It's important, I think, to communicate to our kids. Everyone your kids love, you love. The question is, where is the love being directed? Matter of fact, again, I I think we default to this. We think this sanctification is just about the obedience issues to keeping from something. And and I'll say it this way. We can keep the rules, and not be giving our love to Christ, to the Father. Look at 1 John 2.15, where the first principle comes from. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, people are enticed to the things of the world, and they give their love. And what does that mean? It means as they're giving their love, they are not loving the Father. And recognize the way it's written here, this isn't a one-time choice thing. Every day we are deciding as to where we give our love. Now, I want to add a piece here. Because as relationships occur, see, our love even in a direction can begin to, aff- can be- it can be- begin to fade. It can be toward God. And, and I think of it even, for example, with my wife. If I'm not stirring the affections and taking care of the relationship, understand this, my love can be going withdrawing from my wife and be given to something else. Do you catch that? It's not just ceasing to love, but we're drawn away and we're giving our love in a new direction. But where John wants to tell us, he's saying this, you can't go in both directions. Either we're loving God or we're loving the world. There is no middle ground in his writing. Do not love the world. Again, it's a uh, a, uh, a present imperative. I mean, decision after decision, it's an ongoing battle. Don't love the world tomorrow, the next day, the day after. And he's saying, no, if you're going down that path, you are not giving your love to God. There's another principle we've got to push here this morning. Number two. Recognize in that love that Satan is actively working to lure people toward a love relationship with the world. Satan is a part of it. It's his system. Now, be be careful on this one because Satan is not omnipresent. People tend to think that. There's a Satan under every bush. All that he has to do is create a system of temptations worldly delights that look really, really attractive. That's all he has to do is to lure away a follower of Christ and move them away from loving the kingdom and love, give their love to the world. And you understand in this passage in 1 John 2, it actually gives the three categories, which are the primary categories of how he entices us to move and give our love to somebody else. 1 John 2, look at at how it reads here. For the world offers, um, this is the new living, only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see. And the pride in our achievements and possessions, these are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. Satan's plan is to appeal to our flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Now maybe you've heard of those three terms again and realize that when when Jesus started his ministry, Satan came to Jesus and said, I'm going to offer you these three things. But when we have an unhealthy relationship with the world, we become handcuffed to either one or two or all, maybe all three of these things. So realize, as one that is a child of God, you can attend church, you can attend a youth group, and still be handcuffed to these three issues, these three temptations. Matter of fact, I would say this if there's no really interest in the things of Christ, there's some, and, and one is a child of God, there's handcuffs. They're invisible, but they're handcuffed to these temptations. Matter of fact, even though people attending church, you, I still th- think that can exist as well. We can talk about the Bible, we can know the Bible, we can do Bible studies, learn knowledge, and still be handcuffed to those temptations that Satan is offering to the world. But that first one, the craving, desire, the lust, it's almost always negative in the New Testament. And that flesh really is our old nature that was still there even after salvation. There's these desires, these attitudes within that want something. And when you think, what do we want? There's a number of them. One of them, for example, could be sexual sin or thrill-seeking we're obsession with pleasure and fun. See, Satan's system stir the senses, stir the pleasures, entice people with pleasure, and it distracts them, it pulls the love, and it stops going toward God. The second, the lust of the eyes, what's that about? It's really fundamentally greed, covetousness. It's the things that we have to have. I have to have it. And I think it's tied deeply to our identity as a follower of Christ. And and there's this whisper that says, you have to have this to feel good about yourself. You have to have a bigger home so you'll be happy. And life will be more meaningful. You have to have the right sports, the right jobs. Then you can have meaning in life. You know, if you're a young person, some of the whispers, I have to find the most beautiful woman or the most handsome man, and that will give me meaning and purpose. And you go, not necessarily. See, we can try to find the perfect job. We have enough money, and, and we want to fit with the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. And recognize this, when you look at Jesus as an example, he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. And Paul in prison, for me to live is Christ Prison became his home for influencing people. See, the world invites us to the flesh, needing stuff, and then they want us to have pride. And the pride pulls us away from God. There's this inner voice that says, I've got to be satisfied with what I do, and I want to be elevated so people think much of me. It pulls us into self glory, and we look at our accomplishments and all of the medals and all of the stuff we earn, and we feel good about ourselves and we glory in the self. Now, is there a way that we can do those things effectively? The answer is yes. But it's recognition that when we do and success comes, it's a part of God's stewardship plan. We're being stewards of the way He made us, the way His gifts and the abilities. And the goal there is for His glory and to make Jesus famous. See, the world boasts of achievements and possessions, and I think at times we hold up an invisible sign that says, look at my hard work, my intelligence, and what we've got. I don't know if you remember, I came across an example of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.30. I don't have it on the screen. Listen to this. Is this not Babylon the great? He's talking here which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. And I don't know if you realize in that story, he said that and and God then ended up sending him out into the fields and to live as an animal. And God humbled him. See, but John's point is that we can get stuck In the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we do that we have an unhealthy and a sinful relationship with the world. And we must not claim to love God if we're stuck there. So as a follower of Christ, what do we need to do? I think this, we've got to hold hold a mirror up to our lives and have the Holy Spirit examine our hearts. And are we asking, do we have a love relationship with this world you know, I, I think years ago, it used to be our checkbook that was probably the greatest indicator of what we really loved. I, I don't think that's true anymore in our culture. I think it's our calendar and our energy flask where we're giving our energy to. And I think here's the tension. We, we think that we can give 50% to the world and 50% to God. And John is going, No. Can't do it. Can't do it. But I need to address another issue here because there's a tension as we live in this world. The phrase, and this was centered in my growing up years, to be in the world and not to be of the world. Do you know that that phrase really directly is not in the Scriptures? Do you know that? And it really, as I pondered it this week, I'm not so sure that it's a helpful phrase in our move toward Christ. Because the ending of that, not to be of the world, we diminish the issue of going to the world because that's the tension. It's easy to say, I'm going to avoid the culture and especially those evil people and what they're doing. You know what? They might corrupt us. So the tension... How do we live on mission? That God calls us to go into the world, to be salt and to light, and to go and make disciples. And I think here's the challenge, and I and I think this is from many years within the church. We, we take a hunker-down attitude, and or, or else we, we tend to do a shouting style version. You know, let's go and, and sit on the sidewalk somewhere, and when people come along, hey world, you're going to hell. Hell, hell. And that's what we want to do. Or maybe we do something like this in order to keep us from being tainted with the world. Let's start a track ministry. I know what we'll do. We're going to hand out tracks to everyone and you're going to take them to your home and you're going to go up to their, at night, they can't see you, and then we're going to put them on their door and then you knock or you ring the doorbell and then you run because you don't want to get tainted by those people. At work? To keep us from being like the world? Or or maybe we can do this. How about a tall timber days? We rent an airplane and we get one of those John 3.16 banners and we fly back and forth over the festival. And then just at the right time when there's the most amount of people down underneath, we we dump a whole bunch of Romans road tracks. And let them, that, that way we can influence them. And we avoid, then, the temptation of being with those in the world. Let me explain, I think, the challenge for me as I was growing up. There was a text that I look back and go, they really, my parents did not explain to me. My church did not do a good job of explaining it to me. And I want to put that on the screen for you. First Corinthians 9.19. 9, Look at how it reads. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews to those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law to those who outside the law I might become as one outside the law not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You Notice in those first few verses, five times his aim is to win people. His aim, what is it functionally about? It's adapting to the people that are in front of him why so that he might win them and pull begin to pull them toward Jesus and notice that actually at the verse verse 22 there i've become all things to all people that i may by all means might save some he's winning everyone trying to win everyone but it says might save some let me give you the principle Number three of how we must relate to the world. As followers of Christ, we are to build intentional, relational bridges to the world with the goal to give them Jesus. Five times to win the people. And summarize that some might be saved. So you realize Paul didn't assume that in winning people and being with people that everyone was going to come to faith. Maybe some. See, it really was the parable of the sower. I think Paul recognized that. Is where he sowed the word as he built into a relationship. He was just planting some seeds, potentially in that relationship, the word, the gospel. And maybe another person comes along and waters that, and another one comes along, and maybe there's a harvest where salvation actually occurs. But there was this intentionality with him of moving toward people. And I don't know if you've been reading through with the Gospels at all, with the New Testament read through. There's an interesting observation that came across this week that Jesus spent a lot of time with sinners, with people that didn't know him and needed a Savior. Even this week here, I was reading this, it was a Friday or yesterday, the woman at the well building an intentional bridge with a woman who had, she said, five husbands, and the last one was not her husband. See, Jesus spent time with sinners. Look at another text here that points this out. Matthew 11:18. 18. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and say, he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I have, a, I have a study group that we're kind of wrestling with some of the ideas that we've been talking about on Sundays. And interesting last week, one of the observations come, uh, came out with a number of the guys as this idea of intentionally building bridges to the lost in the world out there was really left out as they were growing up. And that was true for me as well. That idea there that I am a missionary... Or if you're in middle school or high school, you are a missionary. God wants and invites you to become a missionary. That idea was functionally left out. Missionaries, being a missionary, was for the missionaries. They're going over to Africa and overseas. And as I pondered, okay, what was the fear for my church, my parents, And I think one of the wrong conclusions was that building bridges to the lost would automatically lead to you being tainted and a type of unholiness. But if we are a follower of Christ, he invites us to become a missionary in any context. If you're in high school, you'd be a missionary to your friends, See, what's communicated, make sure you stay away. That's what it really was for me because those people, and especially certain people, you avoid. That was kind of the sum, I think, of discipleship growing up. I, I don't think we really believed that as a middle schooler we had the ability to impact another student for Jesus. Avoidance was the norm. Create a moat around the church. Only meet people on our turf the church and back then was the roots of churches creating their own sports leagues so people wouldn't have to get tainted i remember being in a basketball league out in vancouver washington you could only play if you attended the church now what does that say about our relationship with the world it functionally did it creates a christian subculture And I think this, I think Paul would be rolling his eyes at this idea. See, we want to create a Christian subculture. And in the United States, I don't think we've really gotten past it to this day. So Paul's strategy is a relational bridge-building strategy. Why? Because of the love of Christ and the gospel. Look at Galatians 5.13 points it out again. You were called to freedom, brethren. Not only to turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. In 1 Corinthians nine nineteen, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave or a servant to all. What Paul means is, and what Jesus means, that's the love, serving in love. But what about falling in love with this world? Is that a possibility? Yes, there's a tension there. And I don't think we like tension, we like certainty. And and where do we go? How do we stay away? How, How do we get to a place where we can go into the world and really not be of the world, but really actually love the world? Now, so functionally, think of it this way there's two ditches. And in one ditch, you go into the ditch, you actually fall in love with the world, and the world consumes you. But the other ditch that we stay in is let's avoid the world and ignore them, even though they're going to hell. How do we stay on a path and care? It's why discipleship within the context of the church is so critical it's why growing up in our faith, in 1 John 2, I'm not going to go here, talks about young men, you could put young women, who, the word of God lives from the, in them, and they are strong and they've overcome the evil one. You get to a place where there's spiritual strength, where you can engage the world, and the temptations begin fading because the love of God is much more attractive. And it's not really an issue. And you enter that world, why? Because God loves them and you want to give them the love of God. Discipleship is critical. But here's where I, I think for us we saw intentional bridges, but can, it, it sounds like a lot of time. I, I'm pretty involved with stuff. But I w- look as I've been even reading through the New Testament again, Jesus was so Intentional. And he wasn't, oh, by the way, if I got time. Think of Simon, the tax collector. I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to build a bridge to your heart. Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm coming to your home. And I'm going to build a bridge to your heart. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, in many ways, summarizes how we have to move and where we gotta go to do this effectively. Look at 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do not, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. What's it saying? I think it says whatever context we can be intentional our work, our play. But it comes back to the motive. It comes back to, are we really concerned with God's plan of redemption, God's story, believing that people are headed toward an eternal destiny without God. But make no mistake, it's walking over the bridge toward them, not waiting always for them to come to us, Walking toward Christ, falling in love with Christ is what keeps us, though, on that path. It gives us strength and power to approach and do that. But the other ditch, we fall away and we get into it where we have no connection with the world. And then we become no use to the kingdom, building the kingdom. In many ways, we're just like the world. So the deep reality, we got to continue the love relationship with Christ and he must become the desire of the heart where we're initiating relationship with people and walking with them. But I got to go down one more path here, one more principle here today. And it comes out of John 17. And let me put up that passage on on the screen here. Verse 14. I have given them your word. This is the prayer that Paul prays for his disciples and us on the night before he goes to the cross. And the world, there's the word world again, has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You catch the mission, sending them? For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth, be changed by truth. But you notice that word, again, world over and over again. Keep us, keep them from the evil one. The deception that occurs there. But he says that they've been sent into the world. That's the building, the bridge. But then look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only. That was the disciples, but now he's switching. He's praying for us, the church. But also for those who believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You you catch that oneness together in the church family is supposed to be one, just like the Father and the Son. That they also may be in us, our union together in Christ, just as, uh, let's see, together in Christ so that the look at this then so that the world may believe that you've sent me look at verse 22 the glory that you've given me I have given them That's us as believers that they may be one even as we are one and then he repeats the prayer to become one again I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. Here's the third times he prays for spiritual oneness amongst the believers. A church family. But then look at this. So that so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. There is something very subtle that we miss in this John 17 passage and it's number four. It's this, we must invite the world close enough so that they can see our union with Christ and our union with each other. See, the text assumes something, that the world is watching and actually coming close enough to relationships that they're seeing God is working. Do you catch that? They're coming close enough and watching relationships where they look at it and go, "Huh, God's working." And they're seeing such relationships of depth that they describe that it's described as John as it's being one do you catch what's going on so here's the leg- legitimacy of it is we need to understand it is very legitimate to be inviting people into our world into our relational world that which is called the church we invite people into the relationship with each other that they might look at us watch it is that relationship perfect the answer is no they know we're flawed but it's something different that they see, and they see God in it. See, we don't do church to keep the lost out. We invite them into the church family to love them well so that they can see our love for each other. See, to alienate them is you go, how do they ever see oneness if we don't want to ever invite them into our world? And see that love for each other, it's, recognize it's crucial to our relationship with the world, even in terms of our union with each other. And we invite them in, watching, tasting of great relationships centered on Christ. It's true with adults with adults. It's true in middle school, high school students. As your relationship with each other grows, new kids coming in actually can look at those relationships and say, huh, Jesus is real. Husbands, wives, to have a marriage in such a way that guess what? People are looking and going, Jesus, something's different about your relationship. There's a oneness there that's it's impressing on people's hearts. But you catch here the tension as well. We go, we build the bridge to them, but we also invite them back into our lives, into the community where they can see that oneness. It's not one or the other. You know, at the Chili Feed the other night, some of you men invited some guys to the Chili Feed. I want to just thank you for that and applaud you for that. One of the men, as as the speaker shared, we really believe that he may have given his life to Christ that night. There's some other some other movement in a couple of other men's lives and, and recognize that it was because that we invited them into a relationship as they saw that and they heard the gospel, God worked. But you catch the, the tension that we have. We go and we invite. We do both. It, is it simple? No we we got to figure out how we don't fall into the ditch on either side? The answer is yes. And maybe the beginning point there is just maybe to sit in front of God and go, God, am I in love with the world right now? Are my affections, the love, where's where's it really going? Maybe that's the starting point. For some of us, we're going, okay, how do we get out of the ditch? Maybe it's sitting and we're going, I just don't invite people into my life. And what does it look like? And, and asking that God would actually come into, pe- he'd be putting people into our lives to actually invite in to our life. You know, Michelle printed up some cards. We put them out at the Welcome Center. It's just some business cards. And it has our logo, uh, Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church, and it has the service times on it. Here's what I challenge you to do. Just take a couple of them, put them in your purse or your billfold, and you see somebody that you know and said, hey, do you have a church? Here's our, here's our service times. And you would give them a card. It's an invitation into your world. And invite them. It's one of the steps that we can do. In, in a couple of weeks, we're going to put out some cards like this that we center around Easter. Easter is a phenomenal opportunity because people If if, if they've grown up in a church, there's this deep feeling they go, I need to be in church on Easter. And we can use that to invite people into our lives. Maybe you need to be looking at some of those people and planning an Easter dinner, not just for your families. It's to invite other people that have nowhere to go. They don't even do Easter dinner anymore. What would that look like? But see, the goal here, how do we relate to the world? There's a path, I acknowledge it, that we have to stay on. But God is inviting us to relate to the world because of the love of Christ and the gospel. And we've figured out what it means to become all things to all men that we might win many and maybe a few would actually come to know Jesus. That's what we want. There's a world that's dying out there. And they don't know it. And we need to help them and love them well. Not condemning them. That's not the point. It's we have something of life that we get to offer. A relationship with Jesus. Let's stand and pray.